Now, the four gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper give us the fuller revelation of what happened in and around what is called the Last Supper. And the Old Testament gives us our accounts of the Passover itself. We're going to focus on the account in Luke 22, verses 7 through 23, in order to focus on the supper itself and some takeaways from that for us today. So listen to God's word, Luke 22, beginning at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Well, our passage begins in verse 7 by telling us the day and the occasion. It was the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, which is to say it was the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. The evening Passover supper kicks off the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that year, the 14th day of Nisan was on a Thursday. Nisan was the first month of the calendar year. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish new year, is actually in the seventh month and marks the beginning of the agricultural year. We know those are two different things, right? The beginning of the agricultural year, but Nisan was, and Passover marks the beginning of the calendar year. And it's clear that the Last Supper was the occasion for celebrating the Passover Supper. Verses 8 through 13 are all about making preparations. And it's back in Exodus 12 that we are first given uh, the information about the institution of the Passover, where the Lord told the people to sacrifice a lamb and to put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes. And that night they would eat the lamb along with bitter herbs and bread without yeast. And they were to eat in haste, which is how we eat most of our meals today because we're always in a hurry because of busy schedules. But eating in haste was to symbolize the haste with which Israel had left Egypt. And the bitter herbs to symbolize the bitterness of their years of slavery in Egypt. And the blood of the lamb symbolizing the sacrificial substitute one life laid down for another. 
here just a few weeks back, we looked at uh, the book of Numbers chapter 9 and the celebration of the Passover one year later. Can you imagine what a celebration that would have been? It would be like celebrating the first Christmas a year after Jesus was born on his first birthday. It'd be like celebrating the first Easter the year after Jesus' resurrection. The Israelites in the desert, probably remarking about how hard it was to believe that a year had passed since the night that the Lord had passed over their houses and spared them when he struck down the Egyptians. How much had happened since then? They had left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. Certainly they would have recounted uh, that event as they shared in the Passover meal. And they came into the desert where Moses has been going up the Mount Sinai and receiving the law of the Lord directly from the Lord himself for his people. They were exciting days. And yet the people were unsure how exactly the Lord would be able to lead them from Egypt all the way to this land that he has promised. And yet as they ate the Passover and they recalled where they had been and how the Lord had saved them, as they ate the Passover, they knew the Lord had the power to do all that he had promised. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus, who has atoned for all of our sins by his one sacrifice, and our very souls are nourished, and we grow in the grace of God, knowing that God has saved us, and he will finish the good work that he has begun in us. And so the Passover pales in comparison to the Lord's Supper. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is administered with more simplicity and less outward glory. Yet what we have in the bread and cup is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. Let me say that again. The Lord's Supper is administered with more simplicity, less outward glory. Yet what we have in the bread and cup is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. The Lord's Supper surpasses the Passover. Now Luke 22 verse 14 tells us that when the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, su- uh, before I suffer. Now whereas the Seder has uh, 15 parts to it, the Passover is a much simpler seven parts. There is first a prayer of thanksgiving and the first of four cups of diluted wine are drunk. Second, they eat the bitter herbs as the reminder of the bitter slavery in Egypt. And then third, there's the recounting of that Passover night and why it is that the Passover night is different from all other nights. And then there's fourth, a singing of a psalm and the drinking of the second cup of wine. And then fifth, they eat the lamb and the unleavened bread. Again, distinct from the Seder meal where you don't eat the lamb, the Passover is focused on eating the sacrificed lamb and the unleavened bread. And then the sixth part is simply the continuation of the meal, where you just freely eat and enjoy fellowship and eat to your heart's content and ultimately drink the third cup of the wine. And the supper is officially concluded with the seventh part, singing a psalm and drinking the fourth cup. So verse 17 of our passage is most likely the beginning of those seven parts. Jesus is the host, takes the cup, gives thanks, and then passes it around to the disciples. 
But in this, twice, Jesus makes the point that while eager to eat the Passover with his disciples, he will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He says it in verse 16, and then again in verse 18. I'm eager to eat the Passover with you, but I'm not going to do it again. It's kind of a strange combination, isn't it? It's like, I'm eager to go to the movies with you, but then I'm never going to the movies again. I'm eager to celebrate your birthday, but then I'm never celebrating your birthday again. I'm eager to go to a Penguins game, but then I'm never going to a Penguins game again. It's because Jesus is pointing to the fulfillment of the Passover in the kingdom of God. He says, I'm eating the Passover lamb with you, but I'm about to become the Passover lamb. I'm eating the bitter herbs with you, but I'm about to have victory over the bitterness of slavery to sin. I'm eating unleavened bread with you, but I'm about to become the leaven, my redemptive lordship taking over every aspect of life and existence. That last part needs a little bit more explanation. So let's talk about that. Unleavened bread is simply bread made without yeast, bread made without leaven. Today, we can readily buy yeast at the store. Maybe you've got some Fleischmann's sitting in your freezer at home ready for the next uh, bit of dough that you need to make. It's what makes the dough rise. Well, of course, the Israelites did not have such grocery stores or freezers or Fleischmann's. They had leaven, which was the portion of the prior day's batch of dough that remained unbaked, was allowed to ferment, and then was added to the fresh dough the next day to introduce yeast into the whole batch. If you've ever uh, been given Amish friendship bread, you've got the same thing. The leaven is essentially a bacteria and a chemical reaction, the carbon dioxide that creates tiny gas bubbles and makes the dough rise. So leavened bread is that good, light, soft, chewy bread. Unleavened bread is the flat, hard, crunchy bread. The Hebrew word for unleavened is matzah, which is why we talk about matzah bread and matzah balls. The Greek word, actually, for leaven is where we get our English word enzyme. There you go. You can impress your friends with that information. Now, leaven or yeast does not symbolize sin, which is often uh, suggested. The Feast of Unleavened Bread simply recalls that the Israelites in the exodus of Egypt had to eat quickly. They didn't have time to let dough rise. So yeast or leaven isn't bad, which is good because I really like soft, chewy bread. But Jesus does speak of bad yeast and good yeast. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's because yeast affects the whole batch of dough. Bad teaching or false teaching has a huge and lasting and complete effect. But so does good teaching. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom into all the world to affect the whole world completely. And the kingdom of heaven is to go into us completely as well. Jesus is looking for complete rule and lordship over our whole life. Jesus, the risen Lord, is the leaven from heaven, the Savior and Lord of every part of our life, which begs the question, where do you need that in your life right now? 
Where is your struggle right now? Where is the frustration and problems? What would change look like? Not, not change of your circumstance, not change of your situation, but change of you, change of your very heart. What are the idols to which you cling, looking for something or someone to give you what only God can give? What are the problems that you're having with other relationships, friends, family, coworkers, someone at school? And what's the nature, the real heart nature of that problem? What are your desires and our good desires that so easily become idolatrous demands? I must have this. And perhaps you're frustrated that your daily bread isn't a bigger loaf. Look at the portion of God's blessing to you and his goodness in your life every day. Let the Lord get to the heart of your frustration and problems so that he might bring you to the point of repentance and real, complete, and lasting change. Invite the leaven from heaven to do his miraculous work in you this day. The bread that he broke was unleavened bread, and he leavened it. He rose again and gives his rising power to those who take and eat in faith. All of which is to say that Jesus points away from the past Passover to point to the present and future fulfillment in him. It's most likely during that sixth period of the uh, the dinner, when there was uh, just simply the enjoyment, the eating uh, freely that we have, verse 19, that he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As they freely ate the lamb and as they freely ate the bread, Jesus instituted a new reality, not one that looked back to the Exodus, but one that direct, looked directly at him. He says, this is my body. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm the bread of life, and my body will be broken for you. Now, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's kind of an odd thing to say when he's sitting right there, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, okay, we're looking right at you, Jesus. I, I remember. Um, the Greek word there is actually where we get our words mnemonic and amnesia which are about remembering or not being able to remember. So it really is just an ordinary word about remembering. And yet, when we talk about the Lord, remember is not so much a memory word as it is a covenant word. Do this in covenant remembrance of me. In the giving of the new covenant in uh, Jeremiah 31 and recalled in Hebrews 8, uh, God proclaims, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Such a great phrase. God, of course, can't forget, but God, by his covenant love, his hesed love, chooses to remember your sin no more. And so the psalmist encourages us to pray to God, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your hesed love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And God continually reassures Israel over and over by saying, I will remember my covenant. And then he acts with grace and power on behalf of Israel. And so Jesus is pointing to himself as the mediator of the covenant of grace by saying, do this in remembrance of me. And to drive that point home further, verse 20 says, in the same way after the supper, 
He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Another strange statement while Jesus is sitting with them. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. It certainly dispels the erroneous doctrine that Jesus' physical body and blood was in the bread and the cup. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was clearly not saying that his physical body and physical blood were in the bread and the cup. And the disciples certainly did not receive it that way. Jesus was making symbolic markers. And yet, the Lord's Supper is not merely symbolic. Neither is it merely about remembering. When received by faith, we receive the very real presence of Christ with all his benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Now, of course, it could be asked, isn't Christ always present spiritually? And the answer is yes, but in a special, mysterious way, he is present in the Lord's Supper. In fact, the word sacrament in Latin is the Latin translation of the Greek word mystery. And so we recognize it's a mystery. God is present everywhere. And yet again and again in the Old Testament, we read about how God appeared to the people. God is present everywhere always. And yet we read, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. God is omnipresent, but he is present in a special and mysterious way in the bread and the cup. And that certainly makes the Lord's Supper far superior to the Passover. And so note finally that the giving of the cup is emphasized as coming after the supper. It comes after that sixth part of feasting and is the final piece, the final cup that is drunk because Jesus is pointing to something forward. The Lord's Supper is not so much a connection to the Passover past, but it is a new supper reflecting the new covenant and the coming of the new kingdom of Christ. It was the last supper. It was the last Passover supper. The Lord's Supper points to the present and the future. The Lord's Supper points to the fulfillment in Christ, who is our mediator of the new covenant and why it is that we receive continually God's Hesed love. And in the Lord's Supper, the Lord himself is present. Focus on Christ. Focus on his fulfillment. Focus on his real presence in the Lord's Supper and receive him by faith to the nourishment of your very souls. May that truth set us free. Amen.